Good evening. Good to be back tonight. And we're going to continue our study. Last week's study was encouraged by a number of factors. And last week, if you remembered, we looked at the subject of sin and is all sin equal? And I thought it'd be good to continue on this. So I've been cracking open my systematic theology books and reading through them, and I don't like doing that, but I did it anyways, because I think this would be a good study. Tonight, uh, we're going to look at the nature of sin. By the way, if you've ever tried to read a systematic theology book, you know what I'm saying. There's few of them that are very readable. They're usually very technical and detailed. But tonight, we'll be looking at the nature of sin, and I hope that next Sunday, we can look at how Christ defeats and conquers sin. And I appreciate Don's songs tonight, especially before this, about the blood of Christ overcoming sin. So that is where our focus is going to be this evening. Uh, the last two weeks, I haven't really had an exposition scripture to where we, we opened up. I don't think that we will have that tonight as well, but we will have a lot of scripture. So I do want you to look at that. The purpose of this message is, is to challenge you to see why sin is sin and how sin is the opposite of God's nature. Sin is not an arbitrary invention of some man in the sky. And usually if you talk to an atheist, a skeptic, an unbeliever, a lot of them are going to say, that's the way they hear. Well, that's what they hear on the concept of sin. So we're going to look at the subject of sin a little bit further. Tonight, if you think about what sin is, what would your answer be? What would you the definition of sin? You'd probably say whatever's evil, whatever is wrong, maybe whatever is unrighteous. We want to be very specific about what sin is and the nature of what it is. And I think we have a big question tonight. I'm going to leave this toward more to the end. And here it is. God created everything. Is that right? Yeah, he created all things. Where did sin come from? Did God create it? Did God create evil? And that's a big question. And a lot of people don't know the answer to it. And so this is really useful to you if you're in a Bible study and you're studying with somebody and they want to pull out one of those questions out of left field, you know, that kind of thing. Here it is. They might ask you, because God created everything, where did evil come from? Where did sin come from? Why does God allow it? Why is our world in such a way that evil is allowed in the first place? Why did God even create people who can choose to do wrong? Well, we're going to look at that tonight and try to do a good job at answering that. There's a few options, but I think the biblical answer is usually right in front of our face. I want to look at this, first of all. God did not create sin. We'll answer this initially. God did not create sin because sin is the corruption of good. And what I mean by corruption is it's the de decay of it. So God makes everything good. Man sins and it begins to die, to decay. When we think of what sin is or what evil is, we should not think of it as substance as much as it's more of thinking of a bullet hole. You know, what is a bullet hole? What would you describe feels in the middle of a bullet hole? You know, once you've, you fire that gun and you made that hole, it's the absence of what was there. It made a hole, and sin is a hole. It is taking away from what God has made that is good. So it's not a fact of being created. It's what is created that God said, this is good, and we, through sin, have taken away from that. A sin is like rot to a tree. It's like rust to a car. The idea of what evil is. 
As darkness is the absence of light, evil is the absence of good, or it is the corrupting of what is good. And so someone says, did God create evil? No, he created what was good. The question now was going to be, and we're going to answer this later, why would he allow it to where people could sin, that bad things can happen? And we're going to hopefully answer that tonight. If I don't do that, please do your homework and come back and let me know. I'd like to hear more. But sin, as we also see in the Bible, Isaiah 59 and verse 2 is a very famous scripture among our brotherhood. You ask people, what does sin people do to people? They say it separates them from God. In the New Testament, there are scriptures that about say the same thing. I like Ephesians 4.18 and Colossians 1.21. And they say that sin alienates us from God. It's the same thing, right? Separates us from God. That is what sin does to us. So when you read in your Bible about the need for reconciliation, what is reconciling? To bring together again. We need to be reconciled by God because sin is what separates us from Him. We also see that death is separation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you have the judgment day and Christ coming with fire and vengeance upon those who do not know God and those who do not obey Him. It says that they will be separated to God into an eternal destruction, eternally separated from God. That is eternal death. When the Bible says it talks about sin producing death, many would say it produces three types of death. There's spiritual death, there's physical death, and there's eternal death that results from sin. And that one right there, we see the eternal death, the, the ultimate consequence. James 2 and verse 26 gives us a definition of death. Death is the separation of the spirit from the body. The spirit from the body. When we die, the spirit separates from the body. And then the Bible gives us hope and says one day there will be the great resurrection. And as Romans 8 and verse 11 says, and 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says, and a number of other scriptures, I think 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 4 it says that the mortal body will rise up again and God will take that mortal body and put on immortality, put on the imperishable on that risen body in those passages. According to the Bible, what exactly is sin? What is it? We want to be a little bit more specific and very detailed tonight. We could talk about what transgression is, we could talk about what evil is. Those are other distinct concepts. Sin, according to 1 John 3 and verse 4, is lawlessness. It's lawlessness. And we want to think about what God's law is. So God is perfect and holy in every way, and He gives us instructions about the right way to live. This is how you live. And He gives it as His law. It's moral law that has been given to us, and even more so to that law than just morality. The sin is lawlessness, and God's law comes according to His nature. God is holy, His law is holy, and if you break it, that is the idea of sin. Sin is breaking God's law. John declared this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Going contrary to God's law. Jesus said this in Matthew 7 and verse 23 about the day of judgment. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Notice the separation there of sin. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
There it is, the workers of sin. Even though these individuals that Jesus is talking to here, they said, didn't we prophesy in your name and do many great things in your name? And he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sin is an act contrary to God's law. I've always been fascinated with what David said in Psalm 51. You remember there, he's confessing his sins and he's praying for God to forgive him. And in Psalm 51 and verse 4, David says this. He says, God has sinned against you and you alone. I'm thinking, wait a minute, didn't you sin against Uriah? Killing him, taking his wife? David, don't, don't you say that? Now, I think that's when you get into kind of breaking up different terms. He transgressed. He offended Uriah. He did wrong to Uriah. He did evil against Uriah. But when it really comes down to it, sin is offense that is against God, against his law. I want you to listen to a few things that Paul said. In Romans chapter 7, 7 through 9, Paul says this, What then shall we say that law is sin? You know what? I get that impression from many people today. Those who are struggling on the fringes of the church that are marginalized, they talk about God as though he is a man, and they talk about his law as though God arbitrarily just made it up one day. And they talk about that law as, if God wouldn't have made that law, I wouldn't be sinning. But it's not like that, is it? The law comes from him. It's according to his nature and his purity. And some people don't like the law, and they, they think as though God could just simply change it. And Paul says this, what then shall we say is the law sin? Paul says, by no means. It's not sin. The law is what gives knowledge of it. Listen to this. Yet had it not been for the law, it would not have known sin, for I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Here you have Paul describing a person who's in rebellion against God, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. If you have someone who's separated from God, who's not a Christian, who's not trying to follow God, and you go down and you tell them you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this, that opportunity actually opens up for them to do it. When they hear the law, you shall not covet, they become more likely to do it, to think about it. What would be wrong with coveting? What can I covet? And it's able to spread in their thought and their behavior. And Paul expresses that here, that we know sin because of the law. You got to remember as well, Paul talked about the law to the, through Moses, to the Israelites. He also talked about the law that everybody has, the natural law I'm at least knowing some things that are right and wrong, that murder's wrong, stealing's wrong, extortion's wrong, things like that. And you can read about that in Romans 2, 14 and 15. This is what we see about God. God is holy. And if you're writing notes tonight, I would encourage you to write down all these scriptures right here in God's holiness, Leviticus 11 and 1 Samuel 2, 2, Revelation 4, 8, recognizing that God is holy. In fact, throughout Revelation, you hear John saying, holy, holy, holy is God. And we read this in Isaiah 5 verse 16, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And I've said this before, I need to say it again. Holiness is not above God. God doesn't submit to holiness or to righteousness or to um, right and wrong that are above him, nor is it below him as though he decided one day to just make those things up as though they never existed before. They are a part of his nature. They're a part of his virtue. 
As 1 John chapter 4 tells us, God is love and is from who he is, his righteousness, his justice, his love that he expresses and tells us the law. And I think this is an interesting statement from Paul in 1 Timothy. He says the law is for the unholy. You think about that. The law is for the unholy. Listen to what he says. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And I think about my kids. I have to lay down the rules. Usually I don't even expect that. Why do I have to make up this rule that, hey, we're going out the door, and if I tell you to put your shoes on, put your shoes on. But I have to make up certain rules, and sometimes, you know, you just wouldn't think that I would make a list of uh, some of those rules, you know. Don't slap your brother in the face, you know, things like that. You would think it would be implied and that they would know it. But when you give those rules, it's because they break them. It's because they go against them. And God has given us laws and he's given us instruction in the Bible to tell us, you know, people break these, don't do it. And it is here that if you're a just person, you know, those laws about certain things, if you don't struggle with sexual sins, the laws about sexual sins probably don't mean too much. You probably don't pay much attention to it. You're just like, I'll stay away from that. If you don't struggle with alcohol or addiction to drugs, you're not going to think about any kind of instructions about being sober as much. You're going to think, well, I know that's a good thing. I'm going to keep doing the good. But the law is intended there to convict those who break it. I want to look at this tonight as well, the effect of sin. Many of us are familiar with Calvinism. You know the five points of Calvinism, tulip? Let's see if I can get them all right. I don't know if I will. But in Calvinism, the teaching is that we have inherited sin, total depravity, that there's an unconditional election, that God has picked out a certain group of people that he's going to save, and there's nothing that can be changed or done about that. I want you to know that I don't believe in any of these. I disagree with every one of them. There's limited atonement, as though God's forgiveness and his atonement are only for those elect. There's an irresistible grace, that is, that when God acts upon certain people by his spirit or his grace, they can't resist it. That's the teaching of Calvinism. And then you get down to perseverance of the saints. Probably the most famous point in Calvinism is that people will say, once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saint. We want to look at a little bit tonight, and maybe we'll discuss this more further, depravity of sin. The first one there is total depravity that is a tenet of Calvinism. And I don't believe in total depravity. I don't believe that children inherit sin and that they're depraved and that if they die without baptism or anything like that, that they're going to be, going to be condemned. So how has sin affected humanity? It does have an effect on us, and this is what we see here. Number one, sin has brought guilt to all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is a condemnation that comes with it. That guilt affects us. You ever heard somebody say, I'm not coming to church, and they usually give a reason somehow connected with guilt? I don't feel like I'm right with God. I feel guilty. And I'm thinking, that's why you need to come. That's why you need to be here. So some do that, and guilt can affect your, your relationship. You can allow sin to bother you in that sense and hinder you. All right, number two, sin debases each person. In Romans chapter 1, 
God talks about how those who reject him and don't recognize him and don't thank him, that he gives them over to a mind to not be able to control their own desires. And this type of depravity people bring on themselves. Notice this is not against free will. This is them receiving this as a result of their sin and their lack of faith. And this is what we see throughout the Bible. Some people ask, well, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, the scriptures say that God did harden Pharaoh's heart. But who hardened Pharaoh's heart first? Pharaoh did. And after he hardened his heart so many times, he got to the point which the scriptures say that God had brought this justice upon him. And we see the very similar thing in Romans chapter 1. The more you sin, the more you're in rebellion to God. It debases you and makes it harder for you to come back. Number three, sin is corrupting. That is, it kills you and it separates you from God. It makes you a child of wrath. And I do want to read this one. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll read this one. So if you hear people talking about the depravity of sin, even the Calvinists will turn over to this passage. But it's not teaching what they say it teaches. Look at this. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice that. You chose, you acted, you once walked in these sins. They caused death. They caused separation. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the evil one, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience. And verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the depravity that results from sin. You have the death that comes here, the way in which people live in disobedience. So sin is corrupting. And then fourthly, sin is debilitating. It hinders you from doing what's good and what's right. It hinders you from believing in Christ. Jesus said this, people hate me. They don't believe in me because they don't want their sins and their works exposed. John chapter 3. So it's debilitating. Sometimes we look at this, we will be held accountable to God. All people will. The Bible says it comes to a point where we know what's right and wrong. We will stand before him in judgment. Even those who don't have the written law will be judged. Romans 2 and verse 16. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Notice what the law does here. It makes everybody accountable. It stops their mouth. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Same thing again with my kids. I tell them not to do something, they hear it. The first time I may give them a warning, the next time I know you know what the rule is. I know you know what the law is. Now you receive the punishment, the discipline. So we will be held accountable to God. Can keeping the great commandments make you right with God? So I love God and some people have gone so far as saying, I'm keeping the works of the law. And to say that they are justified in that sense, the Bible tells us that that is an error. We can't go around saying, well, I know a few, a lot of these commands in the law, how God structured the church. As long as I keep these commandments right here, God has to save me. Well, it's not just simply keeping the rules. It's living by faith. And that, that faith and love produces our from our love to God, love to others as well. 
So a few points here on sin and God's law. God's law holds all people accountable to God, as we just saw. Therefore, the works of the law cannot make anyone right before God. You can't say, because I'm obedient and I've done such and such, therefore I should be saved. It's because I believe that produced obedience, that God has saved me. God's law gives knowledge of sin. We've seen that tonight. And God's law itself is not sin. And the world needs to be very aware of that. Before we wrap up tonight, I want to look at this, the world's view of sin. And some people ask, you know, they'll say, if God didn't want me to sin, why did he make me so that I can? Why did he make me this way? Why did he allow it? You hear people today say, well, I was born this way. How do we respond to that? I know we've taken in a lot tonight. I want you to pay attention to this. I think this is a good place to take notes. So the world's view of sin, their concept of sin, we need to establish is that it's essentially non-existent. When you don't recognize God and you live as though there is no God, your concept of wrongdoing does not include going against his law. You try to ignore that. And a lot of the ideas out there are against that. Sin connotes a wrongdoing and responsibility to God. And the secular world does not, does not want to go along with that. Our world might talk about prejudice or bigotry. They might talk about corruption in the government. But they're not, they have no concept of what that means as far as God's objective moral law. They have no concept of what sin really is. You look across the religions in the world today, outside of Judeo, within Judaism and Christianity, there really is no concept of sin. Someone might make a case for Islam. But as far as Hinduism, Buddhism, Stoicism, Gnosticism, even the ancient religions, it came back to weakness and ignorance, not breaking God's law. The pagans didn't think like that. They knew that they looked at their gods and said, oh, our gods do whatever they want. They live in fornication and they do whatever they feel like doing. And it had to take some philosophers to come around and say, well, the law must be greater than them. Some of them thought that way. Why did God make a world where, where people can sin? What are the moral alternatives? Now, when I say moral here, I don't mean that these are right at all. But people are questioning how God would make a world and what would be the moral nature of it. God created a world, you'd expect that he would create the best possible world for the greatest good, right? Well, let's think about that tonight. I continue to hear this among our fellowship, among brethren, among those in the margins of the church who are struggling, and they say, why did God make me so that I sin? Well, let's look at the alternative worlds. Here's one. God could not have just created a world. Would that have been morally better? No, it wouldn't. It would have been amoral. There would be no morality then as far as humanity. So you can't really say that is morally better to say God shouldn't have made it at all. In fact, with God not making a world, that would exclude greater good. Good things to happen. Doesn't really make sense there. Someone might say that God could have created a world without free will. Kind of like Calvinism. You would think they would think of the consequences here. But that would mean that that world is non-moral or excludes the ability of choosing good. But what's the greater good? To choose it? Yes. To have the free will to choose it? Yes. To follow what is morally right? Yes. It's not likely that we expect God to create that world. And it's not the world we read about in the Bible. Here's another alternative. God could have created a world where people would not sin, but that lacks higher virtues. 
So think about this. Somebody said, why couldn't God make us? And when he made the world, he made each individual so that their heart was right. And wherever they did in life, that they would always do what is good and not break God's law. And they would choose to do it. Why didn't God just make the people to choose to do it? The problem with that is, is you're not getting the greater good again. What are you missing? Without sin, without offense, without evil in the world, you're lacking some greater and higher virtues. Patience, mercy upon others who have done us wrong, forgiveness on others. What it really means to love. You remember when Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 7, the woman who knew greater love, uh, the person who loved the one who forgave more. And as we see the woman who was uh, cleansing Jesus' feet there in Luke chapter 7, you get that picture. So that world does not produce the higher good. God could have created a world, supposedly, where people could not sin. But again, that lacks freedom. This would be the kind of world where you're tempted to do something and you're thinking, I'm about to take that. I'm about to hurt that person. And right as you're about to do it, God freezes you or he stops you or an angel stops, comes up to you. Or if you're about to say something wrong and it's going to offend your wife, then an angel appeared and closed your mouth or something like that. That would be what they're trying to dream up here, that God would not allow that. But again, that, that lacks freedom. It lacks moral freedom. It lacks, again, the higher virtues in this world. And here's your other alternative before we get to the, what we read in the Scriptures. So some people say that God could have created a world where people can sin and all are eventually saved. In other words, in this world, everybody comes into the world. They have free choice. They all sin, but they all eventually will repent, come and be saved there's a problem with this. It forces forgiveness on people. It also has one ultimate problem in it. In that kind of world where people can eventually be saved, evil is not really defeated. It's just made that God has made everybody to do whatever they want, and there's no evil left over. There's no final real judgment. They're all saved. Those are your alternative worlds. You can't really think of any others as far as God and morality. Here's the truth. This is what we see. The best possible world is the world we're living in. It's the present world. It's a world that has free will. It's a world that allows for greater good, a world where we have to be patient with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, where it produces a higher standard, a standard that reaches and comes as close as it possibly can to the holiness and the righteousness of God. That's the world that God has placed us in. That even in the Garden of Eden, when all things were lined out there, man still had free will. It was because of his consequence and his action that he would be taking apart and taking away from what God had made perfect. But in the end, in this world, God defeats evil. That is the best possible world. It's the one we read about in the Bible. And we hear some individuals today say, I don't understand why God made the world the way that he did. When you look at the options there, there's only one that produces the greater good with the highest standard. It is God and his infinite goodness and wisdom that he created this world that would bring about the greatest good. I challenge you tonight, do not change the definition of sin, understand what it is. It is to do contrary to God's law that came from his nature. Sin is an action contrary to the law. We cannot forget it. 
And I encourage you also to remember that God made this world for the greatest good. Take advantage of that. Turn to your Creator. Turn to your Savior. Turn to Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. All the sins that we commit, there's not a sin too great that Christ and God has not conquered. Salvation comes through Him. It's not of our works of the law. It comes through Christ. Listen to this passage before we close. Paul says, And now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's not by the law. It's not by you keeping the standard in just the right way. It is by God's own grace, His own forgiveness, His own mercy that He demonstrated to us that His righteousness was demonstrated by our faith, a faith that produces good works, that we turn to Him for salvation. He says, For there is no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Tonight, this is your only hope. If you haven't become a Christian, do so. Be baptized. After you have confessed your faith and you've repented of your sins, you can be baptized and rise up to newness of life. You need encouragement tonight? We want to pray with you. We encourage you to come right now while we stand and while we sing.